Hey, thanks for listening to the Junior Ziggler podcast. If you're crazy enough to want more of his content, check out the link in the description of this podcast. That link can get you to his book, his socials, and another podcast. Thanks for hitting play. Here's Junior. You ever wonder why we recognize Palm Sunday weekend? I, I, I do, like, especially as a kid. I, as a kid, it was just kind of like a weird Sunday for me. You, you walk, at least for me back then, walk into the church lobby and everything was decorated in like palm branches. And old people, I just remember old people coming up to me and saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I didn't know how to like respond to that. I was like, yeah, couldn't agree more. And then, you know, you get kids, I, I get like checked into the kids ministry and everybody has like palm, all the kids have palm branches and you walk in like, and little Charlie like sucker smacks you right in the face with a palm branch, you know, trying to start something. And and then I'd sit down and I'd listen to my gem of a teacher talk about Jesus riding into a, into a town on a really small horse. And I just remember sitting there thinking, like, what kind of story is this? Why a donkey? Why not a real horse? Or like a camel? Like a camel would be cool. Why is Jesus riding a donkey? And also, what's up with the palm branches? And I never get an answer. I'd ask my teacher that. It's like, oh, well, you know, that's just what they used at Jesus' parade. It's like, yeah, but why? And can somebody please take Charlie's palm branch away from him? Like, why the donkey and why the palm branches? I was totally just that annoying kid when I was little. But it, I was just, I was curious that churches make this day into a big deal. Why do churches make this day into a big deal? Because if you think about it, it doesn't seem like a great day to me. Like, okay, yeah, sure, they had a, like a parade for Jesus. That's, that's pretty cool. But then the city killed him days later. For me, I would rather go into a town without a parade and live. That's just me. So like I look at Palm Sunday, I'm like, it's just kind of weird that we celebrate this. But could it be that the specialness of Palm Sunday has been missed? And could it possibly be that Palm Sunday actually calls you and I to the mat? See, maybe you're like me and you've heard this story like a hundred times. It just kind of feels like this weird tradition, this cutesy thing that churches just kind of do. Today, I want to dig past all the cuteness. I want to ask some hard questions and I want to discover something more about Jesus than maybe we all expect. And may, in fact, maybe even something more about you. I hope you're up for it. If you're not, I'm going to send Charlie to your seat and wake you up with a palm branch to the face. All right, Mark chapter 11 is where we're going to be. Mark chapter 11, I encourage you to grab a Bible. Bible's in the chairs, it's page 847 in, in those Bibles. You know, a lot of people use their phones and their tablets. You've got Bridge app and apparently a new podcast I had no idea about on there. But Mark chapter 11 is, is where we're going to be. Let me pray, and we'll just jump right into this. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the specialness of what we hold in our hands right now. That this is your word, written to us from our creator. May we take this time seriously. And may you really focus us in on what you have for us, because you have something for each and every one of us today. You will speak as we listen. We thank you that we get to do this. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as the lens of Scripture zooms in to Mark chapter 11, we find ourselves on a path between Jericho and Jerusalem. This was, in fact, the very same road that Jesus used in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You heard the parable of the Good Samaritan. This would be that road that Jesus used when he told that parable. It's a well-traveled road that you can actually still walk today. Uh, in the Jericho part, it's more desolate, but the closer you get to Jerusalem, the green begins to pop. It's this beautiful road, especially in springtime. 
As they near Jerusalem, the sun peeks through the clouds, peppering shadows all over the hilly terrain. That crisp mountain breeze hits just right. And Syrian woodpeckers and finches dart from almond bushes to olive trees. The traffic grows thicker as they get, as they get closer and closer to Jerusalem. There's a festive excitement that hangs in the air. It's an energy that you can almost feel on this road. See, ahead, Jerusalem, a city of 30,000 people, will entertain close to a million people this Passover week. Many are bringing tents with them because there will be absolutely no room in any of the inns or, or the houses within the city walls. It's the biggest time of the year as families reunite in the greatest city in the world. Jesus leads a small crowd up the incline road. He's out in front this time. It's a sight that his disciples will remember and look back on and wonder. Knowing the cross was before him, he walked out in front, Luke tells us. The mission of God is on his mind, and it culminates this very week. And Mark brings us in in verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and to Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Now this is Jesus' favorite spot when he comes to Jerusalem. Two tiny little communities on the Mount of Olives that overlooked the great city. One of his best friends, Lazarus, lived there, and he'd often stay with Lazarus and his two sisters or camp somewhere on the hill. The views here are incredible. See, it's here that you get a bird's eye view of the city. You can see the temple glimmer in the sunlight from up here. The chaotic city packed down below, but it's quieter over here. See, down there, the crowds, uh, Jesus would speak to the crowds with a loud voice, but up here, he would just connect with his friends. His favorite place to be when he'd come to Jerusalem. And today, he'll leave the comfort of the Mount of Olives and his friend circle, and he'll press into the crowds in the city. At the end of verse 1, it says, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. So here he is, the colt, the donkey. Why a donkey, Jesus? You ever wonder that? Like, you're God. You can ride whatever you want. You could have your disciples, like, carry you in. They'd be happy to do that. That'd, be, that'd kind of look cool. Or you could make a Rolls Royce just appear. Think about that statement. You'd pull it in a Rolls Royce. look like, a, like a, some slick TV preacher or something like that. You could ride an elephant like Alexander the Great. What kind of statement would that be? Like, let me just be my annoying eight-year-old self here for a second and say, Jesus, why are we riding a cult? And I never want to read into Scripture and find stuff that isn't there, you know, for the sake of amusement. At the same time, the reality is, is that Jesus was a very purposeful man. He specifically requested a cult. There has to be a reason for this guy in the story, and there is. See, as with a lot of things Jesus did, there was a message that he was sending to the city, but also he was sending it to you and I. See, during this time, when a king rode to war, he rode on a horse. Makes sense, right? I mean, horses communicate power, strength. Horses are beasts of war. Which is why Jesus, when Jesus returns, in fact, Revelation talks about that when Jesus returns and all the armies are, are surrounding uh, Israel and they're ready for a war, Jesus will return on a white horse, ready for war. But today he's not doing that. And it's not a tasteful sight for Jerusalem. See, Jerusalem at this point wants a king that will wage war on Rome, free Israel from political strife. And Jesus riding a donkey is not interested in that. Jesus' selection of a cult communicates that he comes in peace, non-threatening. Now, the bigger part to this is also, it's a prophecy. The prophet Zechariah wrote hundreds of years before Jesus, he wrote this, See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
See, a king on a horse seeks victory through killing. Jesus on a donkey seeks victory through dying. A king on a horse looks to grow his servant following. Jesus on a donkey looks to serve his following. And that is simply not what this city is going to want at this point in time. Who wants a king on a donkey? I mean, it's almost as if you could almost make the case here that Jesus is poking fun at the typical coronations of kings. He's not what most people wanted. And he's not who most people want today. He's still not what we want. See, Jesus came to give Jerusalem not what they most needed. He came to give Jerusalem what they're, not what they most wanted. He came to give Jerusalem what they most needed. And the same is still true with you and I. We want Jesus that you know, fits our plan, feeds our emotions, kind of blesses our days, endorses our political views. And Jesus never fits in the box that we create for him. It's why most people just can't accept him because he doesn't play by our rules. We continue on in verse 7. It says, And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. So now here we have the cloaks. What's up with these cloaks? Like why the cloaks on the donkey's back? And it's actually kind of funny if you ever like Google yeah, just for kicks, I just kind of Googled to see why, like I went on Reddit to see why do people think that, you know, they put cloaks on the, on the ground and on, on the donkey's back. And it's just some of the stuff you find, it's so funny. Um, some say that, that a, a saddle is just too heavy for a donkey, and so he put, you know, cloaks on it. Others say, no, a donkey actually sweats, and so these cloaks kept Jesus from his robe from getting sweaty. It's, like, it's just kind of funny, the stuff you find. The problem with that is, is that all of like, these cloaks are repeated in, fa- in the next verse. So there has to be some symbolism because this is, and many spread their cloaks on the ground. So now we have not just cloaks on the donkey's back, now we have cloaks in the streets. So there's got to be more to these cloaks than saddle weight or donkey sweat. So, so just imagine, imagine the scene. You know, the walls of Jerusalem are acting as a sardine can. Every inn is jam-packed. Every room of every house is occupied. Even the vacant corners of the city have little makeshift camps set up. The morning commute is at standstill in foot traffic. The market is nothing short of just complete chaos. Every gate of the city is gushing with more and more pilgrims. And as word spreads about the famous rabbi, people seem to crawl over each other to get to the nearby streets, hoping that they pick the right street that he goes down. Now it's overcloak season because it's still spring. The spring morning, you know, air is still chills you. So to add to the mayhem, people are wearing these thick overcloaks and they're pulling these thick overcloaks off them and they're throwing in the streets. What is going on? Well, Jerusalem is sending Jesus a message. See, during this time, there's a Roman, a common Roman practice called lectisternium which I just had to say because I sound so smart saying it. Lectisternium. Uh, someone asks you what you learned in church this week, and you say, eh, not much. We just kind of learned about lectisternium. You'll blow their mind. But uh, anyways, other than being a, a, a big word, lectisternium was this practice where people would appease the gods by bringing their, their, their couches out into the street, and then they would lay like a nice fabric over, often like a really nice cloak over the couch, a formal cloak. This would communicate that the gods are needed and they're wanted and the gods are welcomed because we're welcoming them with our couches and our cloaks. This became a very common festival throughout the Roman Empire. When a conquering king would parade through the town, people would lay their formal cloaks out to communicate, hey, we need you. You're like godlike status to us. And so Jesus is being welcomed not as like some really cool rabbi, really famed rabbi. He's being welcomed as a conquering king or like a god. 
Now the issue is, like many people today, most of these people want Jesus for the wrong reasons. Jerusalem says, hey, we need you, cloaks are on the ground, but it's for their agenda, not his agenda. They need Jesus to overthrow Rome, set up a prosperous kingdom, and bolster their economy. This is what they need from their Messiah. It's the condition of man, isn't it? Hey, I want God not to submit myself to and fall in line with what he wants and have faith that his agenda is better than mine. Forget that. I want God to overthrow my obstacles. I want God to prosper my ways. I want God to bolster my happiness. It was Jerusalem, and it's many people today. So again, you go back to this scene. There says Jesus. He's surveying the crowds as he sits on this donkey. He sees a spark of hope in their eyes. Many of these people, they, they want a king. They want him, and they really do mean it. They feel it. They have laid their cloaks down on the ground. He loves seeing the hope in their eyes. They've been hopelessly longing for so long. I mean, for Jerusalem to feel hope, it's like it's almost emotional for him. And yet it pains him to think most of these people want him for their reasons, not his. Which begs the question, does that same pain in him stir when he sees you? Do you want Jesus for who he is or who you want him to be? Continue on, it says, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the field. So now we have these palm branches. Palm Sunday, palm branches. What, what is up with these? Well, during this time, palm branches were often used in art. They were depicted on um, coins. Uh, Solomon even carved palm branches on the doors and the walls of the temple. Palm branches mean victory. They mean prosperity. Where there were palm branches in the desert, there was life. There was some sort of water for these palm branches to grow. And so when there's a celebration, palm branches were brought out. This symbolizes, hey, this is a party. In fact, this is kind of cool. Uh, Revelation speaks of a future party that we're going to have in the presence of God one day. And at this party, we're going to all have palm branches. In fact, look at this. This is a vision of the future that John, Jesus' best friend, has. He says, um, There before was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Now here's what will blow your mind. If you actually believe this and if you are a follower of Jesus, you're in this multitude right here. Isn't that crazy to think about? Like if you actually believe this, you're a follower of Jesus, John saw you in this vision, before the throne. So this is, all, again, all in the future. He's just standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. So you know what this means? So many people miss this when it comes to Palm Sunday, but this is so good. Palm Sunday isn't just a parade that we remember. It's actually a party that we practice for. Now, the original Palm Sunday that we're reading right now was done under false pretense, but we will get it right. Before the throne, we will see him in his glory and we won't be able to help but submit to him and his plan. The future palm party will blow this palm party out of the water. But back to this original party. Verse nine. It says, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, and here we have Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Hosanna, Hosanna means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What does that mean? This is actually a phrase that people would say um, to pilgrims as they were coming into Jerusalem to go worship at the temple, to make sacrifice. This is kind of like a common greeting that they would say, hey, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this doesn't necessarily mean that they're saying, hey, you are from God. Now, some can mean that they're saying that, but this is just a very common greeting uh, during this time in Jerusalem. Verse 10, they continue on. 
They say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Our father David, meaning King David. King David built one of the strongest, most prosperous kingdom, kingdoms this world has ever seen. In fact, if you were to go to Israel today, they still talk about the days of King David. They have the Star of David on their flag because the King David, those were like the good old days. So this is what they are hoping for. Hey, we want the good old days of King David. So Jesus, save us, bring back those days. Now Jesus is coming to offer them something far better. But it won't be what they expect. And it won't be seemingly what they want. See, the people in this crowd want deliverance from earthly oppression. This is what they're shouting for. Hey, this is our greatest need, Jesus. Rome is taxing us into poverty. Rome is stealing our land. Rome is poisoning our customs. And God says, I see you. I see all that. But what I want is deliverance from eternal, eternal oppression. If you think about it, in the blink of an eye, God can destroy all earthly oppression. He can clean up corruption. Take a while in Illinois, but he can do it. It might not take a while for him, but he can do it. He can eliminate poverty. He can do all that. And we could live a peaceful, prosperous life. The problem is, is then we would die and spend eternity in hell. We focus on earthly oppression, and as disgusting and as, as infuriating as it is, God's concern is more about eliminating people's eternal oppression. Now, this is not to say that we should not feed people and clothe people. Like, our church stocks hundreds of people's pantries every week. I, was, I brought my daughters this morning to the food pantry. We had, we had it open at Displays, just a line of people out the door, and we gave them all groceries, and it's awesome, but we give them groceries in the name of Jesus. We don't just give them groceries. Hey, now you have your stomach full. There's something to, there's something else besides food that you need. We're sending, as a church, we're sending kid, kids in poverty-stricken areas to school. or funding their education. We clothe, we feed, we educate as we should. This past week, we have a, a single mom in our, in our church whose, whose car just like basically blew up in our church parking lot. And so as a church, we just, we, we bought her like a used car, like, we care about the needs of people, but at the end of the day, God's heart is for their eternal state, your eternity. That's what God cares about, because we can be kind to people, and we can feed people, and we can clothe people, but if we don't tell them about Jesus Christ, all we're doing is we're ushering them to the gates of hell and making sure they're fed all along the way. Jesus cares more about deliverance from eternal oppression. This crowd in Jerusalem streets, they want destruction of their enemies. These Roman soldiers are bullying and they're abusing. They scare our kids and they hurt our women. Hosanna, save us from the Romans. But Jesus wants more. He wants destruction of sin. God knows you and me. He knows our homes. He knows that sin is our greatest enemy. What's killing you is not your enemy. What's killing you is not the political party that you hate. As corrupt as they may be. It's not that coworker that's giving you a hard time this week. What's really killing you is the sin that you and I, that we hold on to. It's our pride. It's our bitterness. It's our envy that we hold on to. I think we fear, we fear so much about all these political ideologies destroying our home. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't teach and guard and all of that. We absolutely should. But the greatest threat to your home is not a political party. It is your sin. And that is what Jesus came to destroy. These people, they wanted prosperity in the crowd. Hey, just like our father, David, we want the, day, the good old days, superpower empire, bolster economy, Jesus. He wants more. He wants eternity. You can be healthy and wealthy and comfortable and successful 
and yet still so far from heaven. This life is the closest to heaven that most people will ever get. Jesus came so that this life would be the closest to hell that we'll ever get. God's focus isn't on your prosperity as much as it is on spending eternity with you. The fact of the matter is, is God wants more for you than you want for yourself. And this is just always true. God wants more for you than you want for yourself. Now, it doesn't always look the way we want it to look. But he wants, what he wants is so far better. His ways are higher than ours. But often we crave, we crave lesser because we lack vision. And it's then we miss what Jesus really offers. Is that you? God offers so much more, yet we crave the lesser. I think of like, I took my niece this morning. Um, I was out with my girls, and I took my niece, and I, I told her that, you know, I, I'd get her like this small little toy, and uh, she was trying to get like these little, tiny little candy bars. And I was like, Remy, you could have like, uncle is saying you can have one of these things. But she just, she couldn't take her eyes off the, off the little candy bar. And I think that like so many times as I was like trying to get her to come over here, I was like, how many, uh, how many of us is that with God? Like we're just holding on to all these lesser things and God's like, I got so much more for you, so much more. Can you just let go of that relationship because it's killing you? Can you just let go of your, your image that you're just so into because it's just holding you back from what I have for you? Can you let go of that friendship because it's holding you back? Can you let go of those views because it's poisoning your mind? I have so much more for you but we hold on to lesser. See, the original Palm Sunday was all about the disconnect between what people want for themselves and what God wants for them. And I think we all know what that's like. It is tragic that many people spend their lives like this crowd, wanting Jesus, hey, we want Jesus, but not really embracing what Jesus wants for their life. And we finish up the text, verse 11. It says, and he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple and when he looked around at everything, and what he saw angers him. Now, that's the story of next day Jesus will come in and he'll, he'll drive out the, the merchandise from the temple. But here he is. He's brought in as king. He rides in on a donkey. He's brought in as a king. All the cloaks are on the ground. The city has all these palm branches. He's brought in as a king, and his first order of business is to tick them off. And the next day, he will drive out the sin in the temple. This will inevitably tick off many people, and they will reject him, and so begins the road to Good Friday and then Easter. Now, by the way, Jesus still does this. He still does this. Many people, they profess Jesus. Hey, we want Jesus. I want God. Say a prayer. I'll call myself a Christian. And Jesus' first order of business is calling them out doing what he did to the temple, convicting and driving out sin. And many people today, just like Jerusalem, they just can't stomach Jesus' reign, and so they leave, and they move on to something else. Or what most people do, and we're going to talk about this, is they redefine who Jesus is. We redefine the relationship with Jesus. And I wonder if more of us are there than we might think. See, to many people, Jesus has become this get-out-of-hell-free card that we just kind of have in our pocket until Judgment Day. It's kind of like, so there's been a few times where I've, I've taken suitcases to underground pastors filled with items that, like, they wouldn't put me in prison, but I would get in trouble for them. Not, I'm not saying drugs. I'm not like a drug meal, I promise. But I'm like bringing like Bibles and like and, and literature that would be banned in that country, medical supplies that they don't want in that country. And so I'll carry like this big suitcase. And I'll only do it if I can get this letter from a representative from that country who approved me to bring in this stuff. And hopefully that letter keeps me out of trouble. 
So this last January, I was in this foreign podunk airport with this large suitcase filled with contraband, and a couple of the, the country's military officers, they approached me, and they searched me, and they searched the luggage, and then they found the contraband, and they were not happy. And so I was like, I was sitting there, I was like, man, I'm about to find my cell phone locked up abroad. Like, I was like legit nervous about this. I was thinking about my wife. I was like, man, Nicole warned me not to do this, and I don't want my one phone call to be her telling me that I should, not have, I should have listened to her. Not that she would do that, maybe. But... <laughs> But I had this letter, right? So they're searching. They're kind of angry with what they found. I had this letter, and I give them the letter, and I, we don't really speak the language great. We're working through a translator, and the whole time I'm like hoping, man, this letter better work. Like I've never met the guy that this le- the guy who wrote this letter. I hope he exists. I hope this isn't some scam. Like you know, I, I hope this letter is good enough. And I think this is how a lot of people they view Jesus Christ. He's just kind of their letter. It's like, I don't really know him. I'm not really interested in living the way that he's called me to live. I'm not really interested in following him, but I'll take this letter, I'll put it in my back pocket to save for later, you know, when I need him, if the next life really does exist. And Jesus says, no, I, I came for more than that. I'm either king and you're in my kingdom, or what does Jesus say in Matthew? He says, or depart from me, I don't know you. This is what the original Palm Sunday is all about. A crowd that didn't really get it. And that crowd still exists today. In fact, that crowd is even bigger today. Palm Sunday isn't just some spring holiday that we wave a bunch of palm branches. Palm Sunday is a day that calls us to the mat. And that's the question that we should all ask ourselves, and that is, who is Jesus to you? I mean, seriously, this is probably one of the most important, not probably, this is the most important question you could ever ask yourself is, who is Jesus to you? I don't care if you've been going to church for decades. You grew up in the church. Who is Jesus to you? Is he a tradition that you just kind of keep because, you know, that's how your parents raised you? It doesn't matter what your parents believe. God doesn't have grandkids. He only has kids. Is Jesus just kind of like this nice tradition? Someone good to have around? Or maybe he's not a tradition. Maybe he's just, you don't want nothing to do with him. You're not even quite sure why you're in church. You're like, dude, I'm here because like cute girl goes here. And listen, I get it. I'm, I'm just glad you're here. And we're not going to force Jesus on you because he won't force himself on you. We're just glad that you're here and you can hang out here as long as you want. Maybe he's nothing to you. Or maybe he's your get out of hell free card. And that's just kind of it. Because if we're to be honest, like there's no relationship. There's no real desire to follow him or serve him. He's just kind of your insurance that you have in case you get in trouble. Or maybe he's like an upgrade. You're just like, I'm doing life just fine. You know, I make good money, have a nice family. You know, you're doing you and you're doing it just fine. But like, hey, a little bit of Jesus can't hurt, so I'll just kind of sprinkle him in here. It's kind of like updating your phone. You know, hey, phone works fine, but like whatever, I'll accept you know, a new update just in case. You know, it's just kind of like Jesus, right? Who is Jesus to you? It's the single most important question you could ever ask yourself. Because a lot of people today like Jesus. A lot of people like Jesus. If we had a parade tomorrow, down the street, the streets would be slammed with people. But I fear it would be a similar crowd like Jerusalem, a crowd who fell in love with their idea of Jesus and not necessarily Jesus for who he actually is. See, Palm Sunday isn't just some cute holiday. It's a day that calls us to the mat. And the reality is for people who like Jesus, church attenders, priesters, whoever, for people who like Jesus, there are three main ways in which we see in which we interact with Jesus. And now I'd venture to say in this very room, we have people in all three categories. And I don't know where you're at. That's totally between you and God, and it's not my business. But this is absolutely worth considering. This next bit might be pivotal for your life. Three main ways in which we view Jesus. One popular way in which we view Jesus is he's a consultant. 
He's a consultant for my life. He's just a consultant. Every once in a while, Nicole and I, we'll do like a house project. And, you know, something needs to be done in the house. And so I try to fix it. I'm no tradesman, but I do actually, I kind of like working with tools. It's just kind of fun. You feel powerful, you know, with a drill in your hand. Uh, before I do a project, though, it, I always call like a buddy of mine to just like consult me. You know, it's like, I'm going to do this. This is what I'm thinking. How does it sound? You know, and then he'll tell me, yeah, I do this way, I do this way. And so, you know, they'll tell me what to do. And then I'll decide after the phone call, okay, you know what? Uh, I want to do some of what he said, but not everything. You know, he said to use nails, but I, I want to use my drill. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to use screws instead. And I have that freedom because it's my house, right? It's my house. It's my project. Uh, I just want his consultation on it. And that's not a bad thing. But this is how many people view Jesus. He's like the great consultant in the sky. And we can just kind of pick and choose what he says. I like what Jesus says about this. That sounds awesome. So we're really going to run with that. I don't like what he says about this, that, and that. So I'm just going to do my own thing on that because, hey, it's my life. It's my desires. It's my call because I view him as a consultant. It's kind of like last week, I was, as I was preparing for this message, I was sitting in a cigar lounge working on my computer, and a guy came in, very boisterous guy, comes in, he sits down right next to me. It's like, dude, there's like a whole lounge. Why are you right next to me? You know, it's almost like being in a men's bathroom and they come right next to you. But he, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, guys. But he sits down right next to me. He announced right away that, that he was a, a pastor, which is, you know, really weird. He didn't know that I was too. And so he sits down, he's very loud, and he's just like, first thing, he's I'm a pastor. Okay. I, you know, I, I want to end the conversation very shortly because I wanted to get back to work. He's like, that's cool, bro. And, and he looked at my, I think he just looked at my hair and my tattoos. He said, don't worry, though. I'm a progressive my church, we don't hold everything. We let people do their thing. And if people don't like it, they can't come to my church. Like, all right, well, I didn't ask, but that, cool. But in my head, I'm thinking, like, the problem with that is, like, you can do that. It's fine. But, like, Jesus wouldn't be able to go to your church then because Jesus demands some stuff. So is your church like a church that holds the King Jesus, or is your church more of a consulting firm? It's like, oh, just take what we want from Jesus and throw out what we don't want from Jesus because it's our life. It's a very popular view of Jesus. I just take what I want and leave the rest. And Jesus says, nah, it's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. If you come to me, like me, you surrender your life. You surrender your desires. You surrender your opinions. You surrender your views. It's all or nothing. Is Jesus your consultant? For many people, he's a cosigner to our life. He's a cosigner. You know what I mean by cosigner, right? It's like uh, when Nicole and I bought our first house, Nicole's like weeks into her first job as a nurse, and I was making like part-time wages. Of, I'm not complaining, but I was making like part-time wages as a pastor, but we could, we could afford, you know, interest payments, on, uh, not interest, but we could afford payments on a house, and we wanted to buy a house, fill it with babies, and so, you know, we go to the bank, and we could make the payment, but the bank was just like a little bit iffy, and so we got somebody for just like the first year, like co-sign, you know, just in case, and, and, and that helped us get the house. There's many people who interact with Jesus that way. He's just a co-signer. So it's like, I'm going to do my thing, okay? This is what I want to do. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do who I want. I'm going to spend how I want. I'm going to talk how I want. I'm going to use my time how I want. And after all, like, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. He's going to co-sign to that. It's all good, right? He's all about love and forgiveness. Died for my sins, so like, I'm good. I can kind of do my thing here. He's just going to kind of co-sign to what I'm doing. He's like the great co-signer in the sky. I know, joke, I had a guy one time, in my office to, to meet about some stuff, you know, marriage stuff, and, and he tells me, he's like, man, I think God's leading me to, have, uh, to divorce my wife. 
because there's a, a, another woman that, you know, I, I don't know, he's just like leading me to that other woman. No joke, he was serious, total idiot. He's like, Junior, my wife's a drag, you know, God doesn't want me to be unhappy, right, bro? And, and this girl over here makes me really happy, so God must be like leading me over here, you know, to make me really happy. It's like, bro, what are you doing? You're doing what you want, and you're using God as a cosigner. Now, that's an extreme example, but many people, they just do this. They do what they want with very little thought to what God wants or what God says, but then I'm going to drag God into it as my cosigner. And Jesus says, no, I'm not signing off on that. Now, you can do your own thing. You can make your own plans. That's your call, but don't call me God then. I didn't come to surrender my life so that I could cosign yours. I surrendered all that you might surrender all. See, those who view Jesus as a co-signer, their life without Jesus wouldn't look much different than their life right now with Jesus. It's just they kind of sprinkle their Christianese, you know, their Jesus in their life. Just kind of sprinkle it here and there, amen, hallelujah, while they do their own thing. Jesus isn't directing them. <laughs> it's kind of like one of my favorite stories. My, my oldest was two. She got in trouble for something at home, and I don't remember what it was she got in trouble for, but Nicole was reprimanding her. And after Nicole reprimanded Madison, Madison grabbed my hand and said, come on, Dad, let's get out of here. Like funny, cute, yeah, absolutely. But I had to tell her, I was like, no, 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 Mommy and Daddy are one. I'm with Mommy on this. Also, Daddy doesn't follow a two-year-old. But this is just kind of what people do with Jesus. right? It's like, oh, the Bible says that? The church is saying that? These Christians hold to that? Well, come on, Jesus, let's get out of here. And Jesus says, no, I don't follow a two-year-old. You're human, I'm God. I didn't lay my life down so I can co-sign yours. See, to many people, Jesus is their consultant or their co-signer in the sky, which is why Jesus said that those terrifying words that have kept me up at night. When Jesus said, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, but I will say, depart, I don't know who you are. We might want Jesus to be our consultant or our co-signer, but he refuses because he's king. He's king. And he refuses to be anything less. A king won't consult because everything is his. Everything is his. A king won't co-sign because his servants' plans are his plans. A king demands surrender. And who better to demand surrender than the one who surrendered it all? Is Jesus actually your king? My youngest daughter... Uh, her name's Reese, and she's one of the most intriguing humans that I have ever met. And I know I'm biased because I'm her dad. I totally agree with you. But she honestly fascinates me at times. Whatever she puts her mind to, she just does it. Like, she'll beat her sisters at, at anything. She's five right now, but at three, she would climb to, like, the very top of trees. At, at, four, I, at four, I was fishing with her, and she was in the boat, and she asked, she's like, hey, Dad, you think I could swim back to, back to shore? I said, you couldn't make it. Next thing I know, she says, you want to bet? Jumps off the boat and starts swimming toward, she had a life jacket on, but like my dog got all worried, swam with her. She's just, she's crazy. She's still only five, so there's things that she can't do. And when she can't do it, it really bothers her. Like last week, I was up on a roof and I was working on something on a roof and she wanted to help. Don't tell her mom, but I said yes. And so I brought her up on the roof and, and she wanted to hold uh, the drill. And so she has my drill, and at, at, at a point I said, baby, let me have the drill. And she goes, no, dad, I got this. Let me, let me you know, drill this. 
And, and there I am, like, on the ledge of, like, of the roof, arguing with a five-year-old over a power tool. I'm a great father. So I, I sat her down on the roof, and I said, stop. Stop, Reese. I didn't come up here to watch you. I didn't come up here to show you, to, like, coach you how to fix the roof. I'm not going to consult you how to do it, because you won't be able to fix the roof with my consultation. I'm here to do it. I'm happy to have you with, but you have to let go. And I wonder if God is saying the same thing to you. Can you just stop? I didn't go to the cross and resurrect just to watch you live your own life. I didn't die so that I can consult you, so I could co-sign your views and your opinions in your way. You can't get where you want to go on your own. That's why I came to die. So stop. Let go. Surrender. I'm the king to you or I'm nothing. There's no in between here. It's all or nothing. Thanks again for listening. Again, for more content, just scroll down to the podcast description and follow the link. Before we call it, would you be kind enough to share this podcast? It goes a long way. Blessings on you today. See you next time.